I don't know if I should admit this. I have yet to see a single Olympic event. Wow. Is that crazy? It's not that crazy if you're an American. <laughs> oh, whoa, <laughs> wow. whoa. Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. It looks like California Governor Gavin Newsom might have some reason to worry about losing his job. When the gubernatorial recall election effort began in California, and up until just recently, Newsom looked like he could pretty easily beat it back. But two new polls show that Newsom's lead is now within the margin of error. So today, we're going to take a look at why his support is declining and how the recall election could shake out. Also, this Tuesday is Election Day in Ohio, and most notably, the primaries in two congressional special elections will give us a glimpse into where the power lies within the two parties. In Ohio's 11th congressional district, the more progressive and establishment parts of the Democratic Party are going head-to-head, and in Ohio's 15th, the power of Trump's endorsement is again being tested. We've also got a good use or bad use of polling for you all today, but we're going to do that later on in the show. So here with me to discuss it all, our politics editor, Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Galen. Happy first Monday of August. How's summer treating you? We're like, is this the kind of final part of the summer that we're entering now? It's the final part of the summer, but you know, not that slow of a news period. So there you go. Yeah. Well, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but at least we have something to talk about. Um, Also here with us is elections analyst Nathaniel Rakich. Hey, Nathaniel. Hey, Galen. How are you enjoying this part of the summer? I'm enjoying it. I'm watching a lot of Olympic baseball and softball, which has been fun, although it requires me to get up and stay up at ungodly hours, which has been less fun. Ooh, I don't know if I should admit this. I have yet to see a single Olympic event. Wow. Is that crazy? It's not that crazy if you're an American. (laughs) Oh, whoa, whoa. But I have been watching lots of Love Island, and I will still promote 538's Olympic coverage. Head over to 538.com. We have the medal tracker and all kinds of other great stuff for people who are more American than I. I'm kidding. I love America. I just don't follow sports. Galen does love America. I can attest to this. Anyway, let's get to those two primaries in Ohio, starting with the 15th district. So Representative Steve Stivers resigned from his seat in May to lead the Ohio Chamber of Commerce. To replace him, former President Trump has endorsed coal lobbyist Mike Carey in a primary including 10 other Republicans. So eyes are on this race, particularly after the candidate that Trump endorsed lost in last week's runoff featuring two Republicans in Texas's 6th congressional district. So I mentioned that Trump endorsed Kerry. Nathaniel, what are the dynamics of the rest of the field? Is it an array of different levels of Trump alignment? What's going on? Yeah, I mean, everybody in the field is pro-Trump, but of course, only one candidate has Trump's endorsement. But yeah, as you mentioned, kind of after the Texas six, I think there's going to be a lot of perhaps undeserved attention on whether Trump's endorsee wins this time around. And it's not at all clear that he will. There has definitely not been the kind of coalescing or coronation around Trump's pick the way that you've seen in past Republican primaries. So in addition to Kerry, you have former state representative Ron Hood, who has kind of emerged as the pick of the Rand Paul libertarian side of the party. There is a super PAC, the Protect Freedom PAC, that is spending big money, I believe over $600,000, helping him win the race. You also have Ruth Edmonds, who is a minister who is endorsed by Debbie Meadows, who's a conservative activist 
activist who is also the wife of Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. You have Jeff LaRay, who was endorsed by Stivers, the retiring incumbent or resigning incumbent. And in an unusual move, actually, Stivers has spent $300,000 of his own campaign cash left over on airing ads for LaRay. So he's putting his money where his mouth is as well. And then you have several other candidates. Tom Huang maybe might be the most notable of those. He is a local businessman. He owns a golf course and he has just pumped a bunch of money into his campaign. He's self-funded to the tune of half a million dollars. And so you have a lot of spending coming from lots of different directions on this race. It's not at all the case that everybody is is okay with Trump's pick. So that's led to a very unsettled race. We only have one poll of the race. It was an internal poll. It was from two months ago. So I really don't think people should be reading too much into that. I don't think we have a lot of data at all to go off of, except for maybe these kind of fundraising and spending numbers. But really, I think there's a wide range of possibilities here as to who could win, carry, not carry. I think this race in particular, what's been so unusual is when Stivers resigned, he kind of had his pick, Loray, but Loray didn't really catch on. Stivers has put his own money into that. Trump endorses a candidate, but that didn't really clear the field there either. And as Nathaniel said, to be clear, like all of these candidates running are pro-Trump. There's not a lot of daylight between them. I think the one interesting contrast is we do have a recency bias right now with the Texas sixth election being held last week. And so, you know, Trump, the backed candidate there, did not win. So there's kind of that well, what will happen now? I mean, the one poll we have, it's from June. It was an internal poll. It did show a sizable lead for Kerry. Kerry's running as an outsider. When you look at the fundraising numbers, there really haven't been a lot of candidates catapulting to the top. I mean, yes, someone like Wang has self-funded his campaign, but, you know, self-funders are often irregular type of candidate as well. And, you know, one thing that I was really picking up on in the Texas sixth race was people like former Governor Rick Perry were saying, you know what, Trump was sold like a fake bill of goods about Susan Wright. You haven't seen that same kind of outspokenness here around Kerry. You have seen people like Senator Rand Paul backing his own candidate, Mark Meadows' wife backing her own candidate. So there is disagreement, but there is less like open, maybe Trump's pick isn't that good. Maybe he should be going with another candidate. So that gives me reason. As Nathaniel said, it's really an open race. There are 11 candidates. It's hard to know who will pull ahead here, but it does seem to be like a different tenor than what we had in leading up to the Texas sixth race. Nathaniel, you said at the top that this race was maybe getting some undeserved attention regarding Trump's endorsement and whether or not Kerry will win. Why do you say undeserved? I just think that if there are two consecutive losses in a row for the Trump endorsed candidate, that's going to set off a minor firestorm. People being like, oh, Trump is losing his influence within the Republican Party. And I think that that's just a little bit hasty. We have this long track record of Trump endorsed candidates winning their races. You know, there have been a couple of exceptions over the past several of years, but I think that two races shouldn't outweigh the long track record that we have. In addition, I think that even if it's true that maybe Trump is not as powerful as he was while he was president, I think there's room to misinterpret that as well. I think a lot of people will want to say that, oh, like Republican voters are turning on Trump or they're ready to move on from him. And it could be more that other Republican elites 
are expressing their independence, which would still be significant. But we've talked a lot on this podcast, of course, Galen, about how Republican elites probably have more power than they think they do in terms of influencing how Republican voters feel and perhaps getting them to break with Trump. And I think that you see this. Clearly, there are a lot of people, other politicians, donors who are comfortable giving to and endorsing the non-Trump endorsed candidate. And maybe we're just finding that when presented with a menu of options where a Republican voter might be like, oh, Trump endorsed this guy, but this other Republican who I like endorsed this guy. So maybe there are multiple good candidates in this race and maybe they'll split their votes because of that. And also maybe we're just seeing that when Republican donors have two candidates who aren't Trump candidates, they are able to use that money to then convince voters to vote for them. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that Trump isn't still a popular figure within the Republican Party, obviously. Yeah, over the weekend, fundraising reports showed that Trump's political operation raised more money than any other Republican in the first half of the year, which is notable for a former president, and that he now has $100 million on hand to spend in political fights like this. When thinking about money spent in primaries that might have relatively low turnout or might not get that much attention, How are you thinking about that $100 million? Does that mean that going forward in these fights, he's going to have a good shot at picking the winner? I mean, I continue to think that Trump's endorsement is powerful within the Republican Party. The question is whether it is invincible. And that's an exaggeration because some of his endorsees have lost before. And again, two out of hundreds isn't necessarily notable. So you're right. I think the $100 million, it's a testament to the way in which the organization around Trump, that apparatus, especially um, his former campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, is going to try in these races to have Trump's endorsement mean something. And he had this great quote in a political article that was talking about this race in Ohio. And he was saying, organizations that endorse candidates against the president's endorsement do so at their own peril, meaning like they're going to remember this in the sense of you can see how that plays out if Kerry here wins, that why did Meadows' wife endorse this candidate or Rand Paul do this candidate? And remember, you know, Rand Paul and Trump did eventually come to like play golf together, essentially. But Paul's often been on the opposite end of Trump here. And so I think Trump is mounting a very serious ground level game here in the primaries to test the water for the 2022 midterms, but then 2024. And we're going to kind of see how this works out in real time. But as Nathaniel cautioned, this is now the second primary here that we're kind of paying special attention to in terms of loyalty to Trump. And we'll see how that evolves. We've got a lot of time. Yeah, there are going to be a lot of races in which Trump has already endorsed 2022 primary races. And I just don't think we should jump to any conclusions until we see the overall win rate for the cycle. If it is significantly lower than it was in the past, then that would be notable. But we just don't know that yet. And of course, we'll be tracking that here at 538. One question as we wrap up on Ohio's 15th, one other important piece of context here is what kind of district is this? As people see the results coming in, Is this a district that we would typically think of as closely Trump-aligned? Is it more Chamber of Commerce-y? Where does it fall within the Republican Party? And and just how red-leaning is it? Yeah, so this is a pretty Republican seat. It has a 538 partisan lean of R plus 19, which means in a neutral political environment, theoretically, we would expect a Republican to win it by 19 points. So it's not like deep, deep red, but it is probably out of the reach of Democrats in the general election. In terms of the primary electorate, it's a fairly wide-ranging seat. It's in central Ohio. It goes from the 
suburbs of Columbus out to Appalachia. So it would seem to bring in lots of different types of voters. The outgoing representative, Steve Stivers, is literally resigning in order to become president of the Ohio Chamber of Commerce. But of course, the Republican Party has been moving in a Trumpier direction generally over the last several years. And perhaps this seat will be the next domino to fall in that regard. And of course, we'll be able to see as the results come in where the preferences live from those Columbus suburbs out to Appalachia. But anyway, let's turn to the primary in Ohio's 11th congressional district, where former Representative Marsha Fudge resigned from her seat to become Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. So vying to take her place are former State Senator Nina Turner and Cuyahoga Councilwoman Chantel Brown, among others. But really, the focus is on those two. And Turner is aligned with the further left parts of the party and was presidential campaign co-chair for Bernie Sanders. Brown is more aligned with the establishment parts of the party and has been endorsed by House Majority Whip James Clyburn. All right, so we didn't necessarily have a great sense of how competitive the 15th district was. Do we have a good sense of how competitive this race is here in Ohio's 11th? We have kind of a distorted view of it. And there haven't been any independent polls here, but there have been a fair number of internal polls and enough that I think we can chart the trajectory. So basically everyone agreed that early in the race, Nina Turner was doing well. She jumped into the race as the candidate with the most money, the most biggest national profile. She had a bunch of endorsements from basically the entire progressive apparatus. So think Bernie Sanders, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Our Revolution, the group that Turner herself used to lead and groups like that. But I think as the Democratic establishment, and particularly some people who Turner had not played nice with in the past, become aware that, oh, geez, Nina Turner could become a congressperson and become a real thorn on our side. They've come off the bench and sided with Brown, who is a up-and-coming figure within the local party establishment there. So she kind of has the implicit support of Marsha Fudge, whose resignation to become Secretary of Housing and Urban Development is what triggered this special election. Fudge herself has said, I can't endorse because I'm in the Biden administration, which isn't really technically true, but her mom has literally aired an ad that says, we're voting, like Marsha can't endorse in this race, but I can, and we're voting for Chantel Brown. And you've also seen Hillary Clinton, whom Turner famously defected from in 2016. She's endorsed Chantel Brown. Jim Clyburn, the Congressional Black Caucus, has lined up behind Brown. And there's also been a good number of outside spending on behalf of Brown. Um, and all this has kind of added up to an effect. So now you see some, again, in internal polls, and these are actually the ones from Brown's campaign and her allies have been showing this as like a close race, although Turner is still leading by, I think, like six or seven points. So looking at the distortions there, I would say that when you're releasing a poll that shows you're down by six or seven points, you are almost certainly down, probably by closer to 10 points. But it does seem like Brown has been building momentum in the race. Now, of course, you know, we say about momentum that doesn't necessarily last. It could stop here and then Turner wins by 10 points or so. I do think it's notable, though, that Turner herself hasn't released any internal polls. She released an internal poll a few months back that showed her leading. And if she had better polling numbers now, you would think that she would come out with them, but she hasn't. So I do think this is a competitive race. If I had to pick someone to win, I would pick Turner, but either outcome wouldn't surprise me. So we've laid out the macro dynamics here, the national politicians who have endorsed in this race. Sarah, what are some of the debates playing out within the actual campaign? Like what kinds of issues are they talking about? 
One question in this race has kind of been how far to the left to go. You know, at one point, a familiar fault line from the 2020 Democratic primary around health care. Someone like Chantel Brown saying, I support adding the public option to the Affordable Care Act. Someone like Turner saying, I want Medicare for all. However, it's really interesting. Like the group that Turner at one point once led here in 2017, our revolution is kind of rebranded in recent days as pragmatic progressives. What that will actually mean, particularly at this point of the race, is kind of an open question mark because someone like Turner is a well-established progressive in the field. She famously compared the 2020 election to, you know, a bowl of sh- in terms of the candidate choices between Trump and Biden. There does seem, though, as we've seen in other races this year, in terms of progressives having to talk about what it means then around policing in communities, how important is that? So those issues are cropping up. But this does seem at this point largely drawn in terms of establishment credentials versus progressive and not a lot of nuance in between that, but more so just kind of which side of the party do you really want representing you in Congress? Yeah. And what's interesting here is that this race is really being fought on the establishment's turf. The 11th district is a majority black district. And as we know from the 2020 presidential primary and from other races, black voters tend to be pretty moderate and pretty establishment. So you would think that they would naturally go towards someone like Brown. And indeed, Brown and her allies have been trying to make this race a referendum on party loyalty. So a lot of her ads and their ads have focused on a attacking Turner for her dispute disparaging comments against Biden and not backing Hillary Clinton in 2016. And they've also emphasized how Brown will really work very well with Biden and kind of be in this tradition of past Democrats from the district who have been very establishment and worked toward compromise and results and things like that. You also see, interestingly, on Turner's part, she has this national reputation of being a progressive and kind of a bomb thrower. But before that, when she was in the state Senate, she was actually known as someone who worked well with others and she was a rising star within the party. And you've seen her kind of return to those roots in her campaigning. She has really reached out to a lot of her old allies and gotten some key local endorsements. She's also, a lot of her ads are not really focusing on the red meat issues and progressive ideals, but rather on more meat and potatoes stuff that really portrays her as someone who is also kind of looking to just get results and make people's lives better. So, you know, in that sense, both campaigns are catering toward the more consensus establishment focused median voter in this district. I think Nathaniel made an interesting point about how this district is set up well for an establishment style candidate, which is one reason why I think you're seeing establishment wings of the party invest so heavily. It also, though, I think kind of reflects to something we've noticed in tracking primaries and endorsements in 2018 and 2020, which is that in an open seat race like this one, that tends to be a better fighting ground for progressives. And as Nathaniel was getting at too, you know, something like Turner makes her a great candidate because she already has such strong legislative roots in the state. And so you're seeing establishment candidates like the Congressional Black Caucus, Clyburn, taking this race really seriously in terms of the level of investment that they're offering someone 
like Brown. But on the flip side of that, progressives have really invested heavily in this race too. And I think because it's an open seat, there really is a lot of opportunity for them here. One thing we found in 2020 was that of the progressive wins in which it was an open seat, they had about a win rate of 69%, which was much higher than understandably when they take on an incumbent already in office. So I think with Turner's credentials in the state, as Nathaniel was getting at, and the fact that the polls that have been released so far, which have been internal from Brown's campaign, kind of suggest, you know, she has built perhaps a winning coalition here for progressive challengers to look at in future elections. Yeah, of course, we'll have to wait to see the results. We said that, you know, it's kind of too soon to jump to any conclusions about the worth of a Trump endorsement regardless of basically what happens in Ohio's 15th congressional district. When it comes to these races that have pitted the further left parts of the party and the establishment parts of the party on the Democratic side against each other, do we have enough data here to really say that progressives are struggling in the post-Trump, now Biden era? And to add some grist to this question, the Huffington Post published a piece at the end of last week looking at this conflict, essentially intra-party conflict in Ohio, And they wrote that since Biden took office, quote, the left's preferred candidates fell short in the special election in Louisiana's second congressional district in April, Virginia's Democratic gubernatorial primary in early June, and the New York City mayoral primary in late June. And then Sean McElwee, the founder of the progressive group Data for Progress, was quoted saying, quote, each race has its own unique circumstances, but the broader narrative is that under the Biden presidency, progressives need an election message that resonates with our base voters. End of quote, maybe suggesting that they haven't found that yet. So is this enough information here to say that the tides have turned? Or, you know, he also says, does each have its own particular reason that it can be explained away? No, there's not enough information here yet either. A lot of those cases, like in Louisiana and in New York, were also kind of on establishment-friendly turf, I would say. And so it's not necessarily surprising that progressives weren't able to win those races, to Sean's point. But also, of course, the broader sample size thing. You know, Actually, the establishment does tend to win when it goes up against the progressives. Like The progressive campaign apparatus is definitely getting stronger and professionalizing, but I still think they have a good amount of work to do to get to the power of a lot of these party committees and, and things like that. It's also like not necessarily that surprising that in a small sample of elections, the establishment has tended to win. Although you also have had some like lower salience elections where progressives have won, to be clear. But again, there are going to be dozens, if not more, of progressive versus establishment primaries in 2022. We should wait until we kind of have the full body of data in order to draw any conclusions about whether things have changed. The other thing, too, I think to keep in mind here is of the elections that HuffPo cited in its article. Those all had a very like different progressive field for the race. And Turner has been in the lead here since the beginning. She also has strong ties to the area. And so I do think while understandably the main divide in the race has been progressive versus establishment, I'm not sure how much voters are actually using that to kind of make up their minds in this. And it could be, you know, Turner also has a lot of local endorsements. There is a different dynamic to this race. I think the flip side of that, though, is if she were to lose, if Brown were to win, that probably will then kind of be seen as the biggest setback for the progressive movement this year. And I think that narrative will kind of take hold. 
All right. Well, of course, we will keep an eye on those results as they come in. But let's move on and talk about the California gubernatorial recall election. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. California is holding an election to recall Governor Gavin Newsom on September 14th. If Newsom were to lose, he would be replaced by whichever candidate gets the most votes on that same ballot. Now, the election was triggered after Republican activists collected about a million and a half signatures between last fall and this spring. The race did not originally appear competitive, but two recent polls show that's changed to some degree. So a University of California Berkeley poll found that 50% of likely recall voters want to keep Newsom and 47% want to recall him. And an Emerson College poll found that 48% of registered voters want to keep Newsom and 43% want to recall him. So those margins are between three and five points. We're bringing on a special guest to help us make sense of what's happening in California. Our very own intern, Emma Riley, is based in the Bay Area and is joining us now to discuss the recall election in her state. Welcome to the show, Emma. Thank you. I'm so excited. I'm excited to have you here. So, Emma, to kick things off, why is Gavin Newsom being recalled on a political level? We know the nuts and bolts. They got enough signatures, whatever. Like, what problem do Californians have with Gavin Newsom? So I think a lot of people want to attribute COVID to this, but actually this is the sixth attempt to recall Gavin Newsom since he came into office. And with this most recent attempt was introduced in February 2020, so before COVID was even a thing. And it was introduced by a group of Trumpian conservatives, the California Patriot Coalition, introduced this most recent recall attempt. And it was mostly to do with Newsom's opposition and resistance to Trump's handling of undocumented immigrants and just a lot of other traditional ideological positions that don't have anything to do with COVID. Newsom's just also a champion of a lot of democratic and progressive initiatives since being mayor of San Francisco and kind of just stands for almost everything Republicans are against. But we've come a long way since then. So as you mentioned, there were five failed attempts. This may have well become another failed attempt if it weren't for certain things lining up in his opponent's favor. So where did it go from that original effort in February till now? So I think the reason why this recall attempt actually stuck this time has a lot to do with COVID. First, on the procedural level, just like you said, petitioners had to get a certain number of signatures. I think 12% of the turnout from the last governor election So about one and a half million signatures. And you have to do it in a certain amount of time, which they weren't able to do. But then a judge gave them an extra four months because of COVID to get those signatures. 
And the reason why they were able to get those signatures also has to do with COVID because of the French Laundry incident. And that happened in November when photos leaked of Gavin Newsom at this kind of fancy dinner, unmasked indoors against all of his own COVID guidances, which really upset a lot of Californians. So how do we get from an environment, a state where someone like Joe Biden is winning the presidential election by about 30 points to a place where Newsom is only leading in this effort to not be recalled by three to five points at the moment, right? So you have to think that there are people who support Democrats who now don't necessarily support Newsom. What's the story of how we get to that place where like Democrats seemingly, or at least left-leaning independents or whatever, are also not pleased with Gavin Newsom? Yeah, well, I think it's a couple of different things. I should say I'm in the Bay Area where support for Gavin Newsom polls the highest in this area. And also San Francisco County is the most Democratic county in California. I think registered Democrats outnumber registered Republicans nine to one here. So this is a very specific Californian Democrat I've been talking to. And I think the interesting thing is a lot of the reasons maybe that Republicans aren't supportive of Gavin Newsom or why he's not so popular on both sides, on the far left and the far right, are kind of similar in some ways. Like there's just a general like distrust in political elites and feeling like they're tied up in these kind of corporate interests. Of course, the conclusions from, from those are, are polar opposite from the far left and the far right, but the reasons for why he's not so popular among both camps are strangely similar. I would also say that actually I think it's more about disproportionate Republican interest and depressed Democratic interest in the recall than necessarily that Newsom is suddenly less popular among Democrats. So you see that this in the polling numbers. So the Berkeley poll, which was the tightest poll, it showed it being a three-point race where the recall effort was trailing by only three points. That was among likely voters. And in the past, Berkeley, and actually this time also, Berkeley had polled registered voters and the poll was a lot less close. So actually in this specific poll, if you look at just registered voters, 51% percent were opposed to the recall and 36 percent were in favor. Whereas when you kind of filtered down to just the likely voters, it was a lot closer. And that's because that the poll also found that 80 percent of Republicans said they were absolutely certain they were going to vote, but only 55 percent of Democrats did. So I think the challenge for Newsom isn't necessarily that he's lost these Democratic voters, but he just needs to kind of convince them to vote. And I think that there are several reasons why he might be successful in this. I think one big one is is that he just has a ton of money. He has reserved over $12 million in TV ads for the final month of the race. I think that's probably going to do a lot to just inform Democratic voters that there is a recall election. And I think that the vast majority of them, because of simple partisanship, will vote for Gavin Newsom to stay in office. And then the second is that this is actually going to be an all-male election. The COVID-era election law changes that happened in 2020 have been extended through the end of 2021 in California. And that means that everybody in California is going to be mailed a ballot. And for an election like 2020, that might not matter because everybody was going to go to the polls anyway because it was such a high-profile election. For an oddly scheduled election like this one, just getting that ballot in the mail is going to be, I think, an important reminder to people that, hey, there is an election, I should vote in it. And if that increases turnout, it's not necessarily that mail elections benefit Democrats, as we know, but it can guard against a scenario where it's election day and the polls are empty except for the really rabid Newsom haters. So if there's any kind of representative voting across Democrats, independents, and Republicans in California in this election, there should be enough of those Democrats and independents to save Newsom. 
Although we should say that there's been a clear shift in this election in the sense that even just a month ago, we saw a closer race. Is it that just like over the past month, Republicans have just gotten that much more enthusiastic? Or are there other issues playing out in California that have changed some of the dynamics? So I kind of think it might be what Emma was getting at. The polls show strong enthusiasm among Republicans, but that's kind of always been true. They were the ones mounting the recall effort. There have been diehard fans to get Newsom out of office for a while now. But if Newsom, you know, his approval rating in the state in both the Emerson poll and then the Berkeley poll kind of had him at 50 percent approval, which isn't terrible, but is not really great either. And so it's more so I think this atrophy among Democratic voters. They're not necessarily against Newsom, but are they really that energized to go out and support him? So before these most recent polls, we saw polling from May, and those showed a way larger gap between people who are for the recall and people against the recall. And I mean, that was right when Newsom was talking about this giant $76 billion surplus that he managed coming out of a $54 billion deficit heading into the pandemic. And he met with the federal funds and this kind of tax scheme. He was able to come out with this huge state budget surplus. And he was talking about how he was going to spend this money, you know, $6 billion for renewable energy and climate projects and for housing initiatives and, and education and public health. And so at that time in May, I think he was polling a lot higher. And now the race has gotten more heated as these other Republican recall candidates have jumped in, but also the situation has changed. I think with Delta making cases surge again, the situation has become kind of fraught and he's getting more criticism now than I think back then when things were kind of looking like they were going on the up and up. Yeah, I'm curious, either based on the data or your own reporting, what seems to be the most salient issues in this recall campaign? Is it COVID? Because obviously, California has been the topic of a lot of conversation about different challenges from wildfires to droughts to housing. California is losing population. In fact, we learned from the most recent census. What's being debated in this recall election? Without a doubt, across both Democrats and Republicans, housing is a huge issue. There are 160,000, I think, unhoused people in California. It's a huge problem and seems to be getting worse. Climate is another huge issue. The PPIC poll showed that the drought is like the number one environmental issue. That being said, Gavin Newsom polls actually quite high in terms of his environmental and renewable energy issues, kind of similar to Biden, but he has faced criticism. And from on the ground talking to people, no one necessarily faults Gavin Newsom for the wildfires. And I think a lot of people wouldn't be able to say who would do a better job with wildfires. But there was an investigation recently about how he kind of slashed the budget for wildfire prevention and promised to treat like 90,000 acres of wildfires and only ended up being like 12,000, a fraction of that. And so now he's responding to that. Yeah. If you look at the Berkeley poll, they actually asked likely voters what the reason that Newsom should be recalled was. So 48% of likely voters said that the governor should be recalled, quote, because he has failed to adequately address many of the state's longstanding problems. And a slightly smaller percentage, 44%, said that he should be recalled, quote, because he greatly overstepped his authority as governor when responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. So, you know, again, to Emma's point from several answers ago, and as well as that one, it does not seem like this is a COVID-focused thing. It seems like there is broader discontent, at least among a highly energized Republican electorate with Newsom's policies in general. So we've talked about Newsom, why people might not be so happy with him. 
what are the alternatives here and how heavily will that weigh on whether or not Newsom is recalled? Because again, on the ballot, these are two separate questions, right? It's two questions on one ballot. First question, do you want to recall Gavin Newsom? Yes or no. And then second question is, who would you want to replace him? You could get a majority saying they want to recall Gavin Newsom, but whoever they want to replace him may not be the majority consensus candidate. It could just be a plurality winner. So how are the alternatives looking? So I guess in that Berkeley IGS poll, it showed, I think, Larry Elder polled the highest at like 18%. And he kind of jumped into the race last minute and has some of the greatest name recognition. And he's very Republican, conservative, talk radio show host candidate. So right, as Emma said, Larry Elder has the most support in the poll, but even still, that's not a fifth of the response in the poll. You have San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner running, perennial candidate John Cox, who often campaigns alongside a bear. And then I think kind of notably, reality TV star Caitlyn Jenner, despite getting a lot of media coverage when she first jumped in, I think it's noteworthy that in either poll, she hasn't really registered a lot of support. Um, And that maybe has something to do with Jenner's former opposition to Trump. But at this point, there's a lot of voters who are still undecided. That's where the plurality of voters are. Yeah. And I think that was a huge part of Gavin Newsom's campaign, right, is to put spending millions of dollars, make sure there's no high profile Democratic candidate. He's successfully able to do so. There's the one other Democrat candidate that I know of is a YouTuber. But the upshot of that, right, is that if enough people vote yes on the recall on that first question, one of these Republican candidates would replace him. Okay, so given everything we've said here that the polls have tightened, there are some reasons there that have to do with perhaps enthusiasm more than just raw preference. At this point, how worried should Gavin Newsom be? I would say he should take the race seriously, but as long as he does that, he will probably be fine. If I were kind of assigning this a political report-esque race rating, I would call it a likely D race. Like I think clearly it is not outside the realm of possibility that Newsom could lose and that a Republican could therefore become governor. But I mean... The overall advantages, the money I already mentioned, California being such a blue state that he really just needs to get some number of Democratic voters out to the polls or the ballot mailboxes, I guess. And then people are going to talk about the 2003 recall where Democrat Gray Davis was ousted from office and, of course, famously Arnold Schwarzenegger became governor. But there are some key differences there. First of all, California wasn't as blue back then. It was kind of more of a Democratic-leaning state than a solidly Democratic one. But then I think the big one is that Gray Davis was so, so, so unpopular. His approval rating was in the 20s. Like Gavin Newsom is not in that universe. As Sarah mentioned earlier, he's got kind of this lukewarm approval rating. And the polls of the recall showed the same thing. They showed there was very little doubt by the end of that campaign that Davis was going to get recalled. And this is showing, even though the race has heightened and those polls are within the margin of error, and you know we would encourage any candidate who is leading within the margin of error not to take their race for granted, it's not like the recall is winning by a slight amount in these races either. So you know you would still kind of err on the side of it losing. So in the end, I would be surprised, but I think it's going to be a race that we have to pay attention to. Yeah, I would agree. I think it's definitely going to come down to turnout. I think historically in in special elections and these kind of weird off-year elections, turnout is lower. The electorate is whiter, older, more conservative. So there is reason to maybe not worry, but to take it seriously, especially with the polling and, and enthusiasm. And like we talked about earlier, you know, Gavin Newsom signed this bill that 
will guarantee every registered voter will get a mail-in ballot. But we saw in congressional elections earlier this year in Oakland and San Diego that there was still really low turnout, even with this mail-in ballot system. So that doesn't necessarily guarantee everyone is going to go out and vote. And just asking people here in like the most democratic area, talking to people, I think you get kind of one of two responses. One, it's like, oh yeah, when is that election again? <laughs> and uh, like, what's going on with that? Or two, just like, yeah, this is, they might not be strongly in support of, of Gavin Newsom, but they think, yeah, this is just not the right time. It's a massively expensive, like upwards of $215 million being spent on this recall election and a distraction at a time when California is facing kind of compounding crises of the rise in COVID cases because of Delta, a historic drought, and we're entering upon another likely terrible um, wildfire season. So getting up the enthusiasm, I think we'll see that in the next couple of weeks because mail-in ballots actually will be coming August 16th in two weeks. And so I do think these ads will start ramping up. I think his strategy of tying it and nationalizing the recall election is probably a good strategy in a state that Biden won by almost 30 points. And I haven't seen it yet, but I do expect to see a lot more Newsom ads flooding into my social media pages in the next week or so, although I haven't seen that kind of buzz yet. But again, you know, I think it's important to say like, you know, six million people voted for Trump in California. This would not be the first time California gets a Republican governor and the last time it happened, like you said, Nathaniel was in 2003 on a recall. And in general, you know, Californians have voted on more conservative policies, even in 2020. A lot of the propositions, I think progressives were quite disappointed, like Proposition 22 and Proposition 16, where voters rejected restoring affirmative action. So I think Democrats feel quite safe here a lot of the time. And even in 2020, when there was record turnout in the presidential election, there is this feeling of complacency, like, oh, like my vote doesn't even matter as a Democrat in this deep blue state, which where you see that kind of discrepancy and enthusiasm between Republicans who are very passionate about this recall and, and Democrats who don't have as big of an interest in it from that polling. All right. Well, let's leave things there. Of course, we will watch what happens next. But thank you so much for joining us today, Emma. Thanks. <laughs> and before we wrap up, we do have a good or bad use of polling. But first. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. Last week, the U.S. Census Bureau announced that it would not be releasing the results of the 2020 American Community Survey. That's because, according to the Bureau, response rates were historically low due to COVID and did not include a representative sample of the American public. So a little background on the American Community Survey before we get to judging whether or not this is a good or bad use of polling. So the census tries to reach every single person in the country, but that only happens once every 10 years. Meanwhile, the American Community Survey, or ACS for short, is an actual poll that just takes a sample, although 
It's a rather large sample, 3.5 million Americans, but they do it every single year as opposed to just every 10 years. And the census also asks very basic information about age, sex, and race, while the American Community Survey is far more detailed. It asks about jobs, income, housing costs, disabilities, marital status, citizenship status, internet access, health insurance, even the number of vehicles owned by a family or the types of appliances that they have. And so this data is used by all kinds of companies. It's used by journalists. It's used by us here at 538 frequently. And census publications have cited that this data is used to influence more than $600 billion in federal spending every year. So those are the stakes here. The American Community Survey is not just some abstract, boring poll, whatever. Here is the question. Only 71% of participants responded to the survey in 2020. That was the lowest ever response rate. In the past, in 2019, it was 86%. The year before that, it was 92%. The Census Bureau decided not to release the survey this year as a result. Is that a good or bad use of polling? So it's good in the sense that they are not going to release a poll that they are not confident in, that they have a high enough response rate. One thing, though, I think that, you know, is an interesting challenge here in this is the pandemic. And so in their memo, the Census Bureau said that they weren't able to, you know, have a period in which they could try to solve some of the issues with the non-response rate. They were, though, with the census. And so I think in some ways... I kind of wish that they had said, you know what, we're going to delay this even further to try to get the data in a way that it could be usable for 2020. They seem, though, to have instead moved towards like we're going to release an experimental data set that with proper weighting can kind of be used as a replacement. Um, and I assume that had to have been done for like time and resources. Yeah, I would say that this is a good non-use of polling. The Census Bureau was transparent about the problem. They are not releasing data that could have been skewed, but they are releasing this experimental version in kind of like a hidden place on their website, as far as I understand it, so that researchers who are interested in seeing that and like playing around with that and, and maybe trying to figure out what went wrong or how it does vary from reality can still play with it. So I think that is a good use of transparency and gatekeeping. I think notably something that we've said on the podcast in the past is we have criticized pollsters, like political pollsters who conduct a poll and then think it's wrong and then don't release it because they don't want to be partially judged or being an outlier or something. But I think this is very different because it is a poll methodologically, but its role in society and in analysis is very different from a political poll because this is, as Galen mentioned, kind of a foundational data set for researchers and for policymakers. And so releasing something that in all likelihood is wrong would really, I think, be damaging to a whole host of professions and policies. Yeah. My understanding, too, is that like when they release the experimental data, they're doing a write-up, too, about the issues they experienced, what went wrong as well. Yeah, I think that's a really good show of transparency. The first question I had when I saw this was, if response rates were so poor for the 2020 American Community Survey, how can we trust the results of the broader 2020 decennial census? And I asked this in the context of people have been questioning the results of the 2020 census because of most maybe high profile, at least in our world, is the way that congressional districts have been apportioned because of the census data. So like, should we have questions about the census data after hearing this about the American Community Survey? 
No, (laughs) namely because the census had a lot more resources at its disposal. So to be clear, what we saw with the ACS, what we've seen with other polls, is a real phenomenon of non-response. However, the census, particularly because it's conducted at a particular time, they deployed thousands and thousands of people into the field, going and assessing addresses and collecting the data that way. The ACS, it wasn't possible to do it in that manner. And so that's why I think we're kind of in this experimental field now for how they're going to release the 2020 data. Yeah, it was interesting, the explanation that the Census Bureau gave about the non-response bias in the American Community Survey. They said that the population that responded had, quote, significantly different social, economic, and housing characteristics from those who did not. So is the American Community Survey essentially running into the same challenges that other even like election pollsters are? And if that's the case, do we know for sure that this is a COVID-related issue and not a broader issue of non-response bias? I do not think that these are related issues. So my understanding, having read what the census put out there, is that it is pandemic-related. They seem very convinced of that. And they laid out all these reasons for why the pandemic really hampered their results. So they conduct the American Community Service by mail and then take in the results and process them and then send out people in person to follow up with people who didn't respond. And that's very different from how political polls are conducted, which is typically by phone or online. And the census also had this very kind of wonky reason of why, like physically, like they print their things and and stuff the envelopes and then process the results in like this big warehouse in Indiana. And they physically could not do that task. It's not a task that can be done virtually. They physically could not do this task for months in 2020. And so when you talk about the issues with political polls, I haven't heard as an explanation the fact that the pollsters' operations themselves were impacted. I, I don't see how that would be the case. There have obviously been several explanations proposed for what happened with the 2020 political polls, uh, including the mistrust of institutions explanation. But the one pandemic-related thing that I have heard is that Democrats were staying home more and listening to COVID restrictions, whereas Republicans were flouting them more and going outside, and therefore Democrats were the ones at home picking up the phone. And I don't think that is the issue here because the ACS isn't measuring Democrats versus Republicans. And in fact, the AAPOR report Um, that we talked about on the podcast the other day, which tried to diagnose the problem, specifically said that the polls weren't having trouble coming up with a representative sample of Americans based on demographics, race, sex, and the things that the ACS measures. It was specifically that they couldn't wait their way to a representative sample of Trump versus Biden voters. There was something about Trump voters specifically that was being missed. And again, because the ACS isn't asking about this, that's the key here. And in fact, I'm just going to refer to something from the AOPR report, which I thought was very interesting. So they actually tried to adjust the results of some of the surveys that were wrong to weight them retrospectively to the results of the election. And as Jennifer Ajesta at CNN wrote, this exercise did not significantly move the numbers for demographics like age, race, education, or gender, but it did move the numbers for partisanship and for self-reported 2016 vote. So that's why I kind of just don't think that the ACS is running into the same issue because it's not trying to measure the same thing. So I actually disagree with Nathaniel a little. I mean, obviously... Fight, fight, fight. fight. (laughs) Yeah, nerd fight. Um, So, I mean, obviously what the census is collecting is very different from a horse race poll. I completely understand that. 
That said, though, this concept of non-response rate and the idea that it is concentrated among people with lower income and lower educational attainment, that's also true in what we've seen in the postmortems here for the political horse race polls. So I do think we have seen an erosion of trust in our institutions, whether that is a political poll asking who you will support for president or whether it's the Census Bureau trying to understand who you are as an American. And yes, there have been specific pandemic-related issues, particularly for the census itself. But remember, like the data the census is collecting is a lot less granular than what the ACS collects. The ACS wants to know a lot more about the highest level of education you receive, median household income, who lives in the house, what your role is in the house. And that kind of data, if trust in institutions is already low, why is someone going to respond to that versus a poll asking who they'd support for president? I don't know if people would draw a distinction of like trusting one and not the other. And the fact that in both instances, that kind of non-response rate has been found. And as Galen cited at the top, we've seen response rate to the ACS dip in the last three cycles it's been asked. I think that kind of does suggest that there is a larger problem here in terms of getting people to respond that is representative of the whole U.S. See, I thought the Galen's numbers were pretty suggestive that it was the pandemic because the numbers were 92% in 18, 86% in 19, and then all the way down to 71% in 2020. And so I do feel like if it had been about just mistrust of institutions, that would have shown up earlier. I know that that is a kind of a slight decrease, but like, I mean, clearly that drop off from 19 to 20 was very steep. And just logically speaking, it seems like the pandemic is to blame. And again, just because like we do know, I mean, maybe the answer is both, but we do know that like literally the Census Bureau was unable to mail, physically mail these things for three months. And so there is this huge gap in the data. What I would like to know, actually, I'm glad that we've had this back and forth, is that I wonder what the response rate in 2018 and 2019 were on that first wave. So like part of this issue is that they eventually were able to mail things, but they weren't able to do in-person follow-ups. So I wonder what the response rates in 2018 and 2019 were to just the mailing and then how much extra they got from the in-person follow-ups. And maybe once you take out the in-person follow-ups and do an apples to apples comparison with 18 and 19, you would see more similar rates. I'd be curious. This was anecdotal, but during the pandemic, you heard from political pollsters that their response rates were actually increasing. And the response rates for political polls are so much low. Like, you know, these numbers we were talking about of 90, 80, even 70 percent, these are very, very high versus political polling where the response rates are in the single digits. So there's just a lot to me that isn't apples to apples with this. Sure. I think where I would leave it, though, is in terms of we seem to be dancing around this problem, both in political polls, census polls, polls from Pew, about getting the right people to respond. There are people not responding to polls. It seems to trend lower income, lower educational attainment. And so I think you're right in the sense that there are a number of motivating factors for why that might be. Some of it is just pandemic related, can't contact them. But I think some of it could speak to, well, why aren't they responding to the poll? Do they feel alienated? Do they not trust democracy? Are there other factors here then at play for why people don't want to engage in this, not civic duty, but, you know, a way in which we understand the data in our in our country? Yeah. Well, 
Fortunately, they conduct the American Community Survey every year. So I think we'll all be paying close attention to what kind of data and what kind of response rates they're able to collect this year in 2021, which again is maybe not quite a normal year, but we'll see and going forward with 2022. So we will keep our eyes on this as well. But let's leave it there for today. I think all around we decided that this was a good use of polling. If you don't think you have good data, say so. (laughs) So thanks Census Bureau but also, you know, important questions underlying that as well. But thank you, Sarah and Nathaniel. Thanks, Galen. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Claire Bedigary-Curtis is on audio editing and is also in the control room today alongside Emma Riley, our intern. Thanks again, Emma, for being so great on the podcast today. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon.